0: The main impact of anti-communism and online left discourse has been like serious strikes to principled anti-imperialism, particularly in Western nations like the United Snakes, um, like you get to the point where China, for example, or Cuba or Vietnam have clearly managed the pandemic much better, have prioritized the health and well-being of their populations, have engaged in acts of international medical solidarity that have helped other countries fight the pandemic, while capitalist countries abandon them and make it worse. And people can't even admit that's happening. Like, like China has very, very low COVID deaths, and people are like, that's a lie. With no evidence whatsoever, just like a sense that these Chinese people are tricksy because Joe Biden said so, or the New York Times said so. Um, we also have this situation where uh, so-called principled criticism or nuanced criticism of nations resisting imperialism always aligns with the U.S. news cycle and with U.S. ruling class attempts to attack those nations. So say the U.S. has a hair up its ass about Belarus, all of a sudden you're going to see liberals, anarchists, ultra leftists. Uh, talking about how Belarus is a dictatorship. If the U.S. wants to antagonize Iran, the online left is going to criticize Iran. If the U.S. wants to antagonize Cuba, the online left is going to hop in and criticize Cuba. It lines up exactly with the mass media news cycle in the United States, which itself lines up with the U.S. war machine. And there's no awareness of this phenomenon happening, and it has a drastic impact on the kind of like anti-imperialist, Uh, organizing that can happen in the west because people are like afraid to tell the truth about these uh nations resisting imperialism these nations that are actually like the front line for all of humanity fighting against this beast we can't even tell the truth we can't even talk about them because the online left is so in lockstep with the logics of imperialism and anti-communism
1: so in this episode of Hook communist radio erica is going to sit down with our comrade kim to discuss anti-communism and how it impacts the left in the U.S. You know how when everybody always does the whole listen to black women thing? They're never talking about black women who identify as Marxist Leninists. So we really hope you enjoy this. Let's get into it.
2: Okay, so hello. My name is Kim. So I'm a PhD researcher in Miami at Florida International University. I study ecotourism in Dominica. Um, I'm a Marxist-Leninist. I'm a member of Black Alliance for Peace, and I'm really happy to be here with Hood Communists because I'm inspired by so much of the work you all do.
3: Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited about this because, um, yeah, like when we met, quote unquote, we met like on Twitter. Um, it was the tail end of the Trayvon Martin case. And I remember that because I had just started reading the SADA. And that was like my the peak of my interest in communism. And I remember her critiques of liberalism, like saying that liberal is the most meaningless word in the dictionary. And you, I remember you distinctly being like the most vocal Black communist on Twitter um, at a time where that was just not happening. That was like 2012, I want to say, 2011, 2012. Like the the Mike Brown and all that hadn't even started happening yet. And at that time, you were like a Maoist, I believe. I don't even think you were a Marxist-Leninist. So so I do want to talk a little bit about your, uh, your process to Marxist-Leninism, because you did introduce yourself as a Marxist-Leninist. So what yes. has been your process and what has landed you on Marxist-Leninism? Well, uh, I think like
2: many comrades, we all went through, you know, different phases in our ideological and political development, usually moving from a place of liberalism to a more concrete set of analyses and frameworks. And I think for me, um, it was going from being excited about Obama in 2008, and buying into a lot of the, you know liberal sloganeering and identity reductionism of what his presidency was supposed to mean um, for black progress as well as global peace, you know after the traumatic neoconservative years of the Bush administration and the unrelenting warfare. But I can specifically uh, point to two thousand eleven, which was um, Occupy Wall Street that kind of initially sparked my interest in kind of the role of finance capitalism and how it necessitated inequality and like the baseline profit over people. But I think what advanced my politics from this kind of nebulously defined anti-capitalism, simplified as like eat the rich, um, to Marxism was really gaining a deeper internationalist and like anti-colonial, anti-imperialist perspective. You know, I was outraged by the continuation of an expansion of warfare under the Obama administration. And that was what uh, kind of stopped a lot of the prior romanticizing I had of him. And you know, I was fascinated by the Black Panthers like you and like the global alliances as well as theoretical orientations that they drew from Mao Zedong and other revolutionary communist anti-colonial struggles and movements. So by that time, I was a Maoist (laughs) because, you know, for me, it kind of represented and symbolized a less Eurocentric vision of Marxism that resonated with me. But as kind of time progressed and my politics furthered, I started to move away from some of the dogmatism (laughs) and orthodoxy um, that I kind of think plagues Maoism. Um, Anyway, so (laughs) I was kind of adopting more of a anti-imperialist lens especially around geopolitical conflicts as a U.S. imperialism intensified and I found myself more at odds with the Maoists in my circle so I was like I feel like I agree more with the the M.L.s you know so it was kind of Marxism-Leninism that I think allowed a more dialectical and nuanced understanding of historical change and processes and I've been there ever since so that was 10 years I've been there so I'm excited about that so I feel
3: very fulfilled <laughs> And I feel like at that point in time, uh, when you were a Maoist, I was just starting to, like, engage anti-capitalism. Like, Mm -hmm. I think Libya had happened. I started getting into Black Agenda Report. And so, like, the, the veil of Obama was, like, being released. And... Right. So, seeing right. you and then being able to like discuss ideas with you, I think was m- probably the most prominent thing that I remember because you were like leading me to all these things to read and these things to look at, and I sort of advanced my interests. like I didn't quite make it to Maoism, <laughs> but <laughs> but I did eventually, um especially engaging um more of the black um communists. And uh, engaging that work, I did eventually land on Marxist-Leninism as well. But I bring that up to say, like, there's this resurgence of, you know, Marx is white. So, like, just that sort of blanket critique or criticism has not advanced um, collectively. And it shows that we have not advanced collectively on certain things, right? Because just as I noticed with even engaging Asada and all these other um, Black uh, people on the left who identified as communists um, right, on all right. ends of the spectrum. Um, people still land on that very blanketed Marxist white. <laughs> like they just, they just can't move past there. So I just wanted to know, like, why do you find the works of Marx Lenin and even Stalin, um, yes. who yes. is extremely propagandized in the U S yes. why do you yes, find absolutely. them important? Well it's funny because I actually put in my
2: notes thank you for including Stalin (laughs) because you know and this plagues even the western left like western communists they don't even want to touch Stalin they don't want to read anything um, by him and I think that that's Really doing a disservice to their analysis, but um, yeah, I think that the writings of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, um, they really provide you know a strong foundation for scientific socialism or you know dialectical historical materialism, class analysis, class struggle. Um, I've always felt that you know in my journey through Marxism that it is the strongest theoretical tool in the hands of the oppressed because the problems that are being addressed have not fundamentally changed, which is capital, imperialism, and exploitation. And I love this quote by Walter Rodney that I drew up where he says, uh, Marxism is a worldview which contemplates every conceivable phenomenon from protein to literature in terms of a methodology applicable applicable to nature and society. And because Marxism is a social science, um, it's dynamic um, and it's built you know, upon through, which is why many great theoretical contributions have been able to draw from these works as frameworks of reference for liberation within their own set of material
3: conditions. So, yeah. Oh, no, so dope. Like, I feel like there's a quote for everything. Um, as far as, because when I say that we have not advanced on certain things collectively, there's certain arguments that he has already himself, like, put to bed, because these criticisms have already appeared, right? And then... Um, right. I mentioned Stalin primarily because even in my trajectory, in my uh, path towards wherever I am ideologically in this moment, one of the first things that I remember someone telling me about Stalin is, Stalin is sort of the um, a litmus test. Um, so you can tell or see how principled someone is, depending on their criticisms of Stalin. The, the type of criticisms that... Stalin is given is exactly how you can tell where people are principally um, because he is so propagandized, right? So it's very easily for people to just like dismiss or say anything against Stalin. And I do remember um, in engaging Paul Robeson and then his thoughts and opinions on Stalin, right? However he felt about mm-hmm. Stalin, he understood that, like there was a there was a specific need for Stalin and this sort of global, um, fight for socialism, communism, right? And he wasn't going to come back to the US and shit on Stalin <laughs> just right. because, you know? Um, and I, th- I think that that's the sort of principle uh, that's that's kind of lacking that we don't see um, primarily in right. these social media spaces. Yeah. Like, even...
2: He's been trending for two days. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> oh, yeah. He never said, so, yeah, that's- Yes, He's yeah.
3: Definitely <laughs> so. yeah, but even the growing hostility towards anti imperialism, right? When we see it online, it's like collapsed any principal line on anti um imperialism being overtly Marxist Leninism, right? So anybody mm-hmm. who says anything mm-hmm. that's that's in the vag on or that's seen as anti imperialist is now a tanky. So <laughs> so it's like it's regardless mm-hmm. if you're in the crew with Tyreus, regardless if you're a trot, you know. Yeah. So, like, what are your thoughts on the current attitudes towards, you know, tankies on social media? And, like, what are the difficulties you had conveying your politics as a black woman with a scientific socialist ideology?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely been frustrating, (laughs) to say the least. You know, I tried to reclaim the term, but, you know, ultimately I think it stems from anti-communism and, of course, anti-communist propaganda. And I won't get into the deep etymology of the term, but it's thrown around far more loosely than anything having to do with the Soviet Union in Hungary in 1956. So (laughs) for me, you know, when many also feel it's racialized and that it's kind of lodged a lot of times as black and indigenous communists, Um, Those in support of global South struggles, uh, historic global South struggles for liberation, as well as just current socialist states, you know, if it's not in the West, if you will. And um, I think it's a way to dismiss, like you're saying, an analysis that's principled in critique and rejection of U.S. imperialism and Western neocolonial hegemony. And I was going to say that, you know, with the rise of Bernie Sanders... Um, while, you know, some could argue that did some good in destigmatizing the word socialist to a generation of people who I hope have moved, you know, further left since, it also kind of reaffirmed this otherization of Marxist socialism Um, and scientific socialism through these kind of like dog whistles like authoritarianism, totalitarianism, and of course kind of redefined socialism to mean very U.S. centered, slightly left of the neoliberal, you know, Democratic Party policies or Nordic country models, you know, which of course mystifies its dependence on imperialist exploitation. So I think, you know, for me, you know, as a black woman Marxist, some of the biggest hurdles like we talked about earlier in this interview is just kind of like seeing confronting ideas that Marxism is just a dead you know, European old white man ideology, and that, you know, dialectical and historical materialism aren't applicable tools for black women or our our liberation given our, you know, multi-oppressed subjectivities. And basically anti-communism is so institutionalized in the U.S. and the U.S. Academy um, that we aren't taught black communist history. And many, you know, black historical icons, like you were just saying, you know, freedom fighters like Assata Shakur are depoliticized. So I always try to situate these figures within their radical theoretical groundings
3: and I think that's the best way to combat it. Right, right. No, I appreciate that. And then also dialectical and historical materialism is ours. Like, it's not a European thing. Um, so, yeah. But, um, so one of the things that I've always, like, respected about you has been your clear and consistent analysis on China. And a lot of what you credited historical materialism for. Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> so... As such, you've really helped me understand um, the vitriol towards China in this current moment. So I would like for you to sort of define um, xenophobia and how mm-hmm. this affects the left's analysis on China.
2: Well, that's a great question. I really like how you tied it toward the left and how it's even kind of pervasive in the left and how that shapes you know, actual analysis of China. Um, so xenophobia is the fear, hatred of China or Chinese people. And it has been magnified in our current social political climate given the geopolitical kind of challenge that China poses to Western hegemony. And you know, there is a long historical precedent of xenophobia in the United States, yellow peril xenophobia, really since the 19th century, with you know various limitations on Chinese immigration. And in fact, I found out recently that the first restrictive federal immigration law in the United States was to prohibit entry of Chinese women um, in 1875 called the Page Act, and that actually came a few years before the Chinese Exclusion Act. So xenophobia basically reinforces stereotypes of China and Chinese people as inherently deceptive, greedy, unsanitary, uncivilized, encroaching, or a threat, and can also take the opposite forms of viewing Chinese people as submissive, docile, easily manipulated. And that's really the kind of duality of racial tropes. Um, But many times the Western left, I feel doesn't participate maybe in overt forms of these kind of caricatures, but I do think it subconsciously shapes some of the analysis and the kind of assumptions when it pertains to China as a nation state and uh, the People's Republic of China governance. Um, It tends to presume that the Chinese government is lying, trying to hide something from the world, whether it be the origins of COVID or the way even fresh markets were kind of stigmatized and Chinese diet was scrutinized. Um, Or even like to this day, you know, there's a lot of people in the quote unquote U.S. left that don't even think that the Chinese government um, is telling the truth about the death toll from COVID because they've effectively managed, you know, the pandemic quite well, but yet they still think that the Chinese government is lying. In their geopolitical maneuvering, like with myths like death trap diplomacy, kind of which presumes that China is not up front, has ulterior motives in their financial trade dealings and infrastructure projects in the global south, which is what gets kind of the China is colonizing Africa and the Caribbean uh, narratives. And, you know, of course, fake news (laughs) about China seizing assets, which is, you know, firmly rooted in my opinion, Western projection. Especially when you you know, you understand that these Western financial institutions are the predominant holder of these debts and predominant military presence on these lands, yet China is presented as an equally exploitative force. And I think that fails to then consider the age of neocolonialism. And I was I want to draw on like Nkrumah's uh, neocolonialism, the last stage of imperialism, building on Lenin's imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism was really helpful in getting me to understand these nuances and how Western trade and aid functions in a fundamentally different way. Um, and I think it's more fruitful, this gets kind of complicated because you asked about imperialism, um, but I, I think you know it gets more fruitful to have a, an understanding that imperialism isn't merely when countries export capital, but when countries export capital in a way that completely drains resources from uh, through violent neocolonial hegemony. And that while I think we can understand China's rise in productivity, led to a desire to find export markets for their goods. This are for goods, this doesn't automatically necessitate the type of core periphery surplus drain that we would normally associate with imperialism, as we see by the Western powers in the global south. Right. Um, and while there is definitely room for critique of China's foreign policy and actions of like Chinese capitalists, Chinese business firms, um, I think the baseless conflations of the West and IMF make the principal criticism less of a priority because you first have to debunk so much of the propaganda. So that's my spiel.
3: <laughs> no, right, no, because, I mean, I'm glad that you answered the next question because, because um, you know, that is the big question. That's the big conversation that's happening um, because there's a lot of confusion around whether or not China is capital. Um, excuse me, imperialist. And then if we are going to charge... China as imperialist, then we have to understand. Well, what is imperialism, and then what makes a nation right. imperialist? So I'm I'm very happy that you at least attempted to break that down with some clarity because that that needs to be understood because there are. Pre- there are critiques to be made about China. Um, There is critiques to be made about any um, nation that is, that is having relationships with Africa, right? Because we understand, especially as Pan-Africanists, if Africa is not free, then none of us are free. So we do need to have a more critical eye on these relationships, but it should not be conflated with imperialism. It should not be conflated with (laughs) colonialism. (laughs) Yeah. Like (laughs) because those things are, you know, they are defined a specific way. Um, so I do appreciate that um, because that is that is something that, that is making people raise eyebrows, especially with um, not only Africa, but in the Caribbean. And I do right. know that you right. are um, doing a lot of work um, right. pertaining right. to that region. Mm-hmm. So I do want to mm-hmm. say in uh, last year, I read about 19 or 20 books with a specific focus on the Caribbean. And this ranged from Caribbean authors to Caribbean left history to fiction and um, anything set in the Caribbean, uh, because I myself am Trinidadian, but then also I listened to, uh, Dr. Margaret Stevens on, I miss what I like. That was like, Oh my God, there is so much that I do not know about just that labor history. I mean, I know a few like individual labor histories, like the Butler riots in Trinidad and such. I do know about the black power revolution in Trinidad, but I don't have any specifics. So I wanted to engage that specifically. Um, so much of that has just been inspired by our conversations around contemporary politics in the region in countries like uh, Dominica and then in Trinidad and Tobago. So you're in academia in yes. Florida, yes. which hosts, <laughs> and that hosts a whole school of counterinsurgency tactics specifically yeah, yeah. for that region. So I just wanted to know what made you decide to focus on the Caribbean?
2: Well, what got me interested um, specifically in researching the Caribbean is, like, my interest in tourism and being, you know, from South Florida, living in Miami – is a tourism dependent city. Um, So it's interesting that you see a lot of the overlap in the discourse and narrative around romanticized constructions of like tropical paradise um, and processes of displacement that kind of stem from the tourism industry in Miami as you might see in uh, Caribbean islands that are tourist dependent. So I originally wanted to do a comparative model on transnational tourist continuities between Miami and the Bahamas, which has so many amazing Caribbeanist scholars Um, who problematized the Paradise construction um, and whose work I draw on a lot, like Angelique V. Nixon. Um, But, you know... I think what drew me to Dominica because that project unfortunately just was too difficult to actually (laughs) make happen Um, but I will say that Dominica is kind of unique because their tourism is kind of focused specifically on ecotourism and they have like a different landscape that kind of subverts the traditional like white sand beach aesthetic that kind of pervades the tourism marketing and colonial imaginary of the Caribbean so that also fascinated me and I'm also learning a lot more about like the specific kind of radical history of Dominica um, drew a lot from like Rodney kind of like types of like black nationalism um, and of course like the dominican government always kind of like supports the sovereignty of venezuela and cuba and so i kind of do just like the country a lot it's very fascinating and a lot of people think it's the dominican republic and it's not <laughs> it's very much a very interesting uh, nation and i'm very proud and excited to uh, explore further so Um, I know you'd asked about specifically thinking about Miami as, I call it the outpost of Latin American counter-revolution. You know, we're still learning the depths of the role that Miami played in the assassination, right, of a a Haitian head of state. So this is definitely fluid. Um, I will say, hold on, look at my notes here. Um, You know, looking at Miami as kind of a this kind of outpost and understanding the ways in which U.S. empire and these ongoing attempts to sabotage Caribbean sovereignty—you feel it very close when you're in Miami, I think, uh, especially with all the coup attempts uh, that you know have been occurring in Latin America. Um, for instance, Southcom, you know, sponsoring these like joint exercises with its partner nations under the guise of like combating, you know criminal organizations and humanitarian relief um, and involves, and then they draw in soldiers from like Guyana, Brazil, Bahamas, Barbados, Belize, Dominican Republic, Jamaica, you know, Trinidad, um, kind of participating in these regional wide military exercises with these kind of, you know, army personnel from the U.S., from the U.K., Canada, France, and the Netherlands, like all these colonial powers with long, you know, and deep legacies in the Caribbean. And this is, of course, a way for the U.S. to reassert its own hegemony um, in the region, you know, against geopolitical, you know, rivals against left governments um, like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua that have kind of sought a more self-determinant and different path. So it definitely is used as leverage to kind of keep the Caribbean in their, like you said, backyard. And I think that's what's so frustrating about right. it all. Right,
3: Southcom is uh, in Miami. Like that is the headquarters. Um, yes. And then and what happened in Guyana? That's called what Operation Trade Winds, and that's like an annual thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm just learning that that's an annual thing, and they just did that. Especially, um, not especially, but I think it's, it's significant when you think about how their uh, election processes—they were sanctioned. Uh, under Trump, yeah, in 2020 for the election processes, and then in 2021 they're hosting Southcom uh, Operation Trade. So you know, it's it's something to keep an eye on in the region, and I think that the the historical political aspects of the Caribbean is not touched upon enough. I mean, it's so much, so much, so much rich history and so much interconnected history. And that's what makes me a lot more interested in Marcus Garvey, because I know currently there's, there's a, like, there's he's getting shit on currently. I know that. Um, but I think that's because people really do not, I mean, Garvey's a very dynamic person because Garvey's a complex person. Um, right. But I think that it's no small feat, that there is no labor or revolutionary movement in the Americas, or (laughs) that this has not been affected by Garveyism or the UNIA. Absolutely. Um, He has, yeah, since the uh, beginning of the 20th century. So that's not something that we can just easily just dismiss because he has affected so many movements, um, regardless if they Mm -hmm. advance beyond him or, you know, continue that trajectory. He's there. And so... I think that that's one of the more significant things that I've found in reading all of these books that they all, in some way or another, mention Garvey. But you did mention tourism. And one book that I always, always, always tell people to get is Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place because that opened my eyes to the effects of it. Um, So I look at traveling and tourism completely different um, since reading that book.
2: And it's only been magnified due to the pandemic. Oh, it's disgusting as well. under
3: the no. pandemic. <laughs> it's disgusting under the pandemic because, I mean, the argument for tourism is self serving. Right.
1: You know, right. it's like,
3: well, we need to travel because, you know, these poor countries, they need our help. But it's just yeah. like, yeah. you're not really helping. You don't leave your resort, you're not actually helping these countries. Right. More importantly, uh, Cuba, I know that you did talk about. Um, your your work or Miami your interest in it and I know that you wrote a piece for Hood Communists um, about you know not listening to Miami Cubans so I did want to thank you for that piece because it was such a necessary piece um, that cleared up a lot I don't know if you want to maybe talk about uh, writing it um, the reaction since writing it a bit all right. Well, I so
2: that was during the July um uh protest that it occurred, and I think that there was a lot of misinformation going around. Um, and I don't think in the social media and the role of Twitter was like really, you know, magnifying these like false narratives. And again, unfortunately the you know, a lot of academics were kind of <laughs> repeating um these falsehoods, I would argue. I call it, you know, propaganda. And I was like, I got to let people know, because if again, if you're not in Miami, you don't realize the kind of far right forces that are being emboldened. And I felt that it was very important that, you know, a lot of the the rallies that were, you know, again, they had Proud Boy infiltration. I mean, it was it was scary to see it was like a fascist kind of movement going on. And I just think that a lot of, you know, maybe U.S. liberals, left liberals, they they weren't attuned to that so I really wrote that piece so they could just understand just like the you know the complex economic hardships that Cuba is facing and that that should really be our focus and I think that it was ignited also by the um Black Lives Matter statement that got so much backlash so I kind of felt also that it was important to kind of be like no they were correct in their (laughs) focus on the embargo and not making a judgment on the government because I just don't think that's the place of you know a real anti-imperialist critique so yeah I was happy to write it.
3: In the beginning, you mentioned that you were a member of Black Alliance for Peace. And this is a big deal for me, Kim, because, like I said, I have been watching you and your trajectory. And you have been a staunch advocate against organizations for such (laughs) a long time. You've been online saying no. They're not a good thing to do. Um, the dynamics of organizations, and I know that you have, you have not, you were not just screaming this into the void because this is not something that you've actually tried to do. Um, I know that you have your experiences, but I do want to know um, why, BAP? Like, what made you, what made you decide to join a revolutionary organization in this point in time?
2: Well, I will say to put a little more, uh, nuance is that I was more so saying that I, I think that people should know what they might be getting into when they join an org. That's all I was saying. Now I wasn't against it fully, but I do think I, part of me does feel, you know, somewhat like, you know, just join an org, but you make sure you know what you're joining. You know, you might join something and you're like, I don't know if I'm into this. <laughs> so you just gotta know, what, be, be knowledgeable. That was what I advocate. But, um. What was I going to say? So, yeah, Black Alliance for Peace. Well, I'll tell you what made me so just enamored is that, again, the strong anti-imperialist and pan-African focus, but just the real, you know, principled anti-imperialist stance. You know, I kind of feel that the anti-war left is weak on anti-imperialism and they really don't get the, the extent and the depths. And I think that that's something that BAP gets really, really well is that, you know, You know, AFRICOM, you know, there really isn't many that have put as much focus and attention on what is even happening with the, you know, U.S. militarism in Africa. And I think that that, you know, for in a lot of ways was really like lacking in some of even the U.S. kind of like more left liberal organizations. And that's something that's unique. And I just think that, you know, the reach of U.S. neocolonial militarist hegemony and its threat to the peace and prosperity of other countries is something that really just angers me to no end so I'm just really inspired by that and that's why I thought it was a good idea to join
3: (laughs) no I appreciate that I appreciate you adding the nuance um because you know I was being facetious but I do know (laughs) that um your criticisms I I did always try to directly address um even if, if it wasn't in conversation with you it would be through my writing like because I did you know they were Correct criticisms. I mean, people should know what they're getting into, and people should not just only join something to for the sake of joining, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Because you want to be active in your organization, and you don't want to be, mm-hmm. you don't want to feel, you know, marginalized within that space. And I right. do know that that is a right. thing. So to see that you, um, you know, found BAP, or you know, and it didn't even have to be BAP, but to see that you did come around into joining an organization, um, show me that you know you you saw value in it. And that was something that I was like, yay, because, you know, that is something that we push Join a revolutionary organization fighting for, you know, the, the freedom of your people um, because it is important. And I think um, one of the things that I value about the Black Alliance for Peace is that it is that that critical analysis about, around anti-imperialism, but it is that principled analysis that I think that is sort of lacking um, there's a particular line that that holds that you just really don't see anywhere else. That's Well, you see it in the AAPRP, but they're bat members. <laughs> you know, you see it in other, you know, you see it in community movement builders, and you see it in, in Ujima, um, but they're also bat members. And I say that to say that, you know, I'm very happy to see the growth of it. I'm very happy that you are a member of it. This was a dope-ass interview all right so that's all i have so i want to thank you so much kim for chopping it up with me and this was really great thanks so much erica for having me all right
1: peace peace y'all that's a wrap for this week but be sure to go check out the blog hoodcommunist.org we always got new articles on there every thursday It's good shit revolutionary shit go read that take that in also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Hood Communists. We got kicked off Twitter for telling the truth, but we still kicking talking our shit on Instagram. So go follow us and stay up to date with what we got going on. And lastly, if you enjoy what you heard today, if you enjoy what you see on the blog, be sure to share this with your people. Be sure to share it with somebody who you think might appreciate it. You know what I'm saying? Everything we do, we do it because we believe in the potential to transform society and we believe in revolution. So Like I said, share that. And lastly, we always encourage our people to join organizations that are fighting for justice, that are fighting for liberation. If we could solve the problems in our society as individuals, we would have did that a long time ago. So, yeah, take care of yourselves, man, and we'll see y'all next time. Peace.